Luke chapter four this morning. Um, and uh, yes, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, we'll be continuing on. Last week, Brandon Vassallo uh, was able to lead us in a sermon um, on the genealogy of Christ right before this. And right before that, Jesus was baptized by John out there uh, in the, the, the Jordan River. Um, and so here, we actually will pick up in Luke 4, verse 1, immediately after Jesus is baptized. I have the NET version here, um, so I'll be reading from that. It says, Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he endured temptations from the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were completed, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, Jesus answered him, it is written, man does not live by, by bread alone. Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in a flash all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, to you I will grant this whole realm and the glory that goes along with it. For it has been relinquished to me and I can give it to anyone I wish. So then if you will worship me, all this will be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written. You are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil brought him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And with their hands they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. So when the devil had completed every temptation, he departed from him until a month or so until a much more opportune time. So I'll go back to the title slide here, Luke 4. But Luke 4, uh, we see the temptation of Jesus. You know, people almost always know the right thing to do, but people have a hard time doing the right thing. Uh, but, but, but most people, and even children, have an innate sense of what is right and what is wrong. I'll give you an example. If you go to the movie theater, you can remember movie theaters. If you can go to the movie theater, and let's say you enjoy that sweet spot, that beautiful seat, right? Right smack dab in the middle of the movie theater. And, you know, my brother, when we used to go to movies, he would count, actually, which was a little bit intense. But he would count the perfect uh, center seats from the top to the bottom, left to right, so we could sit right in the middle. Right. Um, and let's say you get there uh, and maybe you're running a little late and somebody has already taken that seat. A part of you is probably frustrated. A part of you is like, ah, I wanted that seat. But you don't feel betrayed. You don't feel like that's wrong. Now, let's say you have that seat. You are sitting right in the middle, but you get up during the previews to go to the bathroom. You come back and somebody is sitting in your seat and you left your cup there, you left your popcorn there, everything to kind of mark your spot. And But somebody took your seat while you were in the bathroom. You have a totally different response. Your response is, hey, that's my seat. I got there first. This is wrong. Now, it's not really a different situation at all. In both situations, your seat was taken. But in the second situation, you feel betrayed, you feel like wronged, uh, and you use this like this like universal code of argument, right? Our, our children do this. I got there first. It was mine. It, 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 it belongs to me. I'm, I feel betrayed. 
and it, it speaks to that there is this, this, this divine right and wrong. There is this divine bar of justice that everyone kind of appeals to. Um, and then a lot of times, humans don't always do the right thing. We usually have instincts, you might, you might call it impulses. And I think too often we do the, the wrong thing, but we almost always know what the right thing is to do. Um, and it, it's hard because we live in a world that I think it's becoming increasingly fuzzy and from the world's perspective on what is right and what is wrong. You know, there's this um, great HBO miniseries, Band of Brothers, where they interview men who actually fought in World War II. And it's amazing because they ask all the men why they fought and they all say it, it, was, it was the right thing to do, period. But why, no, it was the right thing to do, it was clear. Um, and it, it can be easy nowadays to be like, well, what's the right thing to do? What's the right thing to do about the pandemic? What's the right thing to do about how to engage, right, in having an active voice in, in social justice? What's the right thing to do in regard to uh, meeting up with other people? Do I, do I wear a mask? Do we socially distant? And all these things, what is, and we can like be so caught up and uh, anxious and paralyzed by, oh, what is the right thing to do? We don't know. You know, and, and this is an incredible scene. Because the second you read this verse in Luke 4, he says, Jesus was led into the desert to be tempted. Anybody who's read their Bible immediately thinks of two other incidents. One is another situation where the agent of God, God's chosen, was tempted by Satan. That's Adam, right? Adam is God's image bearer on earth. So Adam is sent down to be this image bearer. He's, he and Eve really are God's image together, the male and the female, and he and Eve both fail. They both give in to the temptation. They know the right thing to do, but they, they buy the serpent's twisted logic, his lies, and they sin. And we today are facing the consequences of that sin. Think about another incident. Who else was led into the desert to be tempted? Not for 40 days, but for 40 years. That was, well, that was the nation of Israel after they're led out of Egypt, right? How did they do? Not well. In fact, Moses is not even allowed into the promised land because Moses himself struggles and sins there when he strikes the rock. Um, they, they complain, they ask for bread. They ask, you know, which is a similar incident with Jesus here, right? They beg for bread, they beg for food. They say, we should go back to being slaves. It's better than this. So every, and Israel in the same way that Adam was God's agent, Israel was God's agent on earth, God's representation, God's ambassador for the world. So every time in the Bible, and we can, I haven't even mentioned Job or the others, but every time we have somebody who is uplifted to be this godly example, they fail. They give in to temptation. And to be honest, that's us. You know, we, we can't look at Adam and go, oh, Adam, that is not cool, man. We, we all are Adam. We all are Eve. We all have sought to be controlling like Eve or lazy like Adam. We've all sought to be impetuous and greedy and complaining right? To be like, like Israel, right? We've, we've, this is, this is our sin as well. And so on comes the scene, a new agent of God, this guy, Jesus, who's just been baptized. And here he comes to be tempted. By the way, uh, Jesus is baptized and it doesn't say Jesus was baptized and therefore Satan left him alone for 50 years. You know, like, no, it says Jesus was baptized. Therefore Satan tempted him. You know, sometimes we think we get baptized, all the problems go away. It's not true, right? We get baptized, here comes Satan, right? Here comes temptation, right? Here comes the new attack. Because now 
Satan's lost somebody, they're on the other team, he's got to come and get them. So we should never be surprised, especially young Christians, never be surprised at the, the, the trial you are facing. But what's Satan's attack? What is Satan's strategy with Jesus? Now, Satan's good. Satan's batting a thousand. For those that don't know that, that means you're doing really well. Satan's batting a thousand um, with temptation. He's like, I got Adam, I got Eve, I got Israel, I got Job. You know, man, I, I just tempt people and they always fall. I get them. Satan finds your weakness. He finds that weak spot and he takes you out. I took out Samson. All, right, all these people he can list. He's, I, and here comes Jesus. Oh, look, another agent from God, another Yahweh representative. Well, here we go. I got this. You can almost imagine Satan coming on the scene like, I got this. So what's he do? Well, he says, if first temptation, if you are the son of God, right? You're hungry. Why don't you just, if you have power, why don't you use that power to make some bread, to eat? All three temptations are actually very similar in the sense that, that Satan, in a way, is not actually questioning Jesus' sonship. He's not questioning that Jesus is the son of God. He's questioning how Jesus should use his privilege as the son of God. He's questioning how Jesus should use his responsibility as a child of God, as the son of God. And here's where it gets tricky. Is Satan actually, he appeals. He says, no, you have the power, but why don't you use it for yourself? Buy your, get yourself some food. Kingdom, I'll give you any kingdom you want. And he says, he says why don't you use it for yourself? And isn't that the great temptation of our lives? Um, isn't that the great temptation of right now, especially in times of, of difficulty and adversity, is just to go, you know what? Why don't I just look out for myself? It's a great temptation for all of us, right? Why don't I just take care of my family? Why don't I just focus on myself? Um, it's a great temptation to just worry and, and only be concerned about what we want, about our own bread. And our, our focus then shifts away from the kingdom of God and it shifts toward bread. You know, for, for, for those of us out there for the last five months, how, how, much, how much of our focus has been on the kingdom of God these last five months? And how much of it has been on bread? How much of it has been on the things that we, what we need? And I think any of us would say that bread is kind of important, especially to somebody who's not eaten for 40 days. Not even important, it's, it's essential. But Jesus, in that moment, decides, you know what? I'm not going to change God's will so that I can have what I want. Because it would have been easy for God to say, or for Jesus to say, yeah, God wants me to eat. God would never be mad at me for eating. I will, uh, I'll eat. Sure, yeah, I'll get what I want. Because God, God wants me to have what I want. It would have been easy for Jesus to do those theological mental gymnastics in his head and be like, okay, everything's fine. You know, Satan wasn't tempting him with anything crazy. Satan wasn't like, Jesus, go kill somebody. Like, Jesus, Jesus, go sleep with somebody. Jesus, go. He says, Jesus, have a bite to eat. It doesn't seem like much, but as a kernel, there's a kernel in there that Satan is trying to plant a kernel of mistrust. Satan is trying to get Jesus to not trust in God. That's what all this is about. You know how I know is because the final temptation, you know, he said the first one, right? Is he said, all right, bread alone. But he's saying is the, what, what Satan is doing is he's saying, Jesus, is God really going to take care of you? Jesus, is God really concerned about you? Jesus, is God really going to protect you? He gets him to doubt and doubt is that great sin Every sin begins in doubt. Every transgression begins in mistrust. 
every fall away began with a kernel of, <clears throat> does God really care? There's something deep there. There's something powerful there because if Satan can get us to not trust in God, we begin to call the shots. We begin to say, you know what? I got this one. And maybe we whitewash the tomb, right? With, with, with a scripture or, or religiosity. But Jesus understands how important the little things are. And Jesus quotes scripture. How great is this? It is written, man does not live by bread alone. A great one. A great one by Jesus. Round one, Jesus, right? Um, <laughs> he takes the first round by quoting scripture. Scripture is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Because what scripture does is if we memorize it and we know it, it can remind us of in whom to place our trust. It can remind us of where our trust is supposed to be. That's why we teach our kids scripture, why we help our kids to memorize verses, to teach them where to trust. Not in their abilities to save themselves, but to trust in God, right? And the second one, it's a great picture there, right, of, of the, the kingdoms of the world. You can see the Roman Colosseum and the Greek um, Parthenon. You even see, I think, the Forbidden Temple there from China. Um, is that the Great Wall in the upper left? I can't tell. But um, you, you see these, these kingdoms of the world, kingdoms of the world, um, you know, and uh, right, what's Jesus's message? I, the kingdom of God is upon us. And Satan goes, I can give you this. I can give it to you. Worship me, it'll be yours. The other thing that Satan's trying to do is not just sow seeds of mistrust. He's trying to get Jesus. He knows by causing mistrust that he can get Jesus to switch allegiances. He can get Jesus to actually switch allegiances from God. The beautiful thing about Jesus in this temptation narrative is that he's single-minded. He's singularly focused. How hard is that right now, by the way? One of the difficult things about our world is that, you know, for thousands of years, people were mostly just concerned about their village or concerned about like their city or their family because those were the things within their, their purview. Now, because of media, we're worried about so many things. We're worried about what just happened in Mongolia. You know, we're like, oh, that's so worrisome and anxious and anxiety. And I'm worrying about what, happened, what just happened to Madagascar. You know, like we're just, we can be so aware of so many things. And one of the great distractions, right? One of the great abilities of Satan is to get us distracted. But we're not focused on the kingdom of God. There's something beautiful in simplicity. Something beautiful in just keeping it simple. Keeping it within our own, our own simple view of what is the mission of God for me today. And there's power in being singularly focused because when we get distracted, Satan can wreak all kinds of havoc. You know, we had a wonderful men's midweek this past week, and I just want to lift up uh, Brother Andre for leading our hearts for the Zoom session. I know that Andrew and Zali also did a great job with the lessons, but, but Andre did a great job. We were talking about fighting the battle together, and one of the brothers had bought, brought up, are we even fighting the same battle? <laughs> what battle are you fighting? What battle are you fighting? What battle? We're all fighting different battles right now. It's hard to be unified. We're not even fighting the same, the same battle. Um, and so being able to, to, to figure out what is our mission. And as we look forward to the fall, we've, I think a lot of us are starting to lift our eyes up now. For the last few months, it's been um, just, keep, just stay alive. <laughs> but now it's like, no, what's the mission of God's church in the new climate? How can we adjust, survive in advance, right? How can we move forward in this environment? And finally, the great final test, right? To go to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is important for Jesus because this is where Jesus is going to die. And Jesus knows it. Jesus knows this is his great mission. 
is to die. And Satan goes right for the kill. Satan's like, all right, no more messing around with bread and kingdoms. Let's go to Jerusalem. You know why I'm taking you there. Let's go stand at the top of the temple. Hey, Jesus, I bet if you fall, would God even catch you? Something to think about. Would God even care if you died? And Satan's good. So he wants to pull out his own scripture here, right? He's like, oh, you got scripture? I got scripture. So Satan actually quotes scripture as well. Out of context, be careful of those, right? This is why it's so important to read scripture in context. Just because you know scripture, it makes you no different than Satan. You have to understand the meaning of the verse. You have to understand the spirit of the verse. You have to understand the purpose of the verse, like Jesus did. Jesus understood, no, no, no. It is said, don't, don't test God. Oh, and Jesus goes out of there three for three, right? Just, just, uh, just takes out Satan. But the, the crazy thing is the eerie note on which the verse ends is this, wait, but Satan's not gone. He waits for an opportune time. And of course we know when that is, when Jesus bends the knee, right? In Gethsemane to pray. Um, there, there Satan appears again. But these are, the, these are the temptations Jesus fought in 40 days. But in reality, they're the temptations that you and I face every day as well. The temptation to put ourselves first, the temptation to, to just do what we think is best, whether it's about our kids' school, whether it's about um, our marriage, whether it's about our own relationship with God, whether it's to actually confess the, st the, st the stubborn, stinky, nasty addictions maybe that have been fed or that have recurred over the last few months. Whether to confess or not, these, these decisions, these moments, these are the tests we face every day. Um, and, and the thing that we have to remember is that Satan tried to tempt Jesus. He said, listen, you shouldn't have to die, Jesus. If God really cared about you, you wouldn't have to die. Satan doesn't believe in martyrs. Satan believes that we all should be, be able to have what we want when we want. You know what, sounds, what that sounds like? Is it sounds like the world. Interesting that Satan offers to give Jesus the entire world. What does that mean? It means that Satan's in charge of the entire world. Satan is in charge of the kingdoms out there. Satan is ruling the things out there. Now God is redeeming his earth and his mission will be accomplished. But we can't put our trust in the institutions of Satan. We cannot put our trust in the kingdoms out there. Satan's not offering them to us. Hey, you know what? I'll give you this. I'll give you that. We only worship God alone. Well, and it doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to issues in the world. It doesn't mean that we bury our head in the sand to issues in the world. That's not what Jesus did. In fact, the next thing Jesus does after this is go heal a stinking leper, right? Jesus is on his way out of the door into the world to go help people. That's not what's happening here. What's happening is he has an allegiance, an allegiance that supersedes all other allegiances, even to the point where Satan says, does God really care about you? Because Jesus understands one thing is that we are not saved from death, we are saved through death. And that's the title of my lesson this morning, is Saved Through Death. Often we spend our lives trying to be saved uh, from death, right? And that's the human instinct, right? Um, some social scientists recently did a study on why so many Christians died. Uh, there were so many Christians who faced agonizing, torturous death. There was this one guy named Ignatius of Antioch, and he actually uh, had a chance to not die. They gave him a choice. You don't have to die if you just you know, recant. And he wouldn't recant, so they were going to feed him to wild animals uh, in Rome in the Colosseum. And of course, Ignatius has the great quote of bring on the breaking of bones, bring on the tearing of flesh. You know, like, I don't bring it on. I'll die a torturesome death. There were pregnant women who were burned on hot griddles, uh, burned alive, and people would pay to watch. How can a pregnant woman do that? How can a, 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 and so social scientists come to the conclusion 
that logically these people must be crazy, right? That's the, that's the conclusion of the scientists because it doesn't make any sense. It goes against every human instinct. Every human instinct is to preserve, to take care of yourself, to, to, to survive. And there were definitely Christians who, who did so, who definitely betrayed the faith and, and tried to survive. But one of, the, one of the things that Ignatius said before he died was that, how could, I, how could I live when I know that after I die, not only will I receive an incredible reward, but I know that my brothers and sisters will tell my story for generations to come. Here I am 2,000 years later telling the story of Ignatius, right? He understood something, is that we are not saved from death. We are saved through death. This is baptism. What is baptism compared to, right? A death right? That we must die to our former way of life. That this is what Jesus was able to do, is to, to, to be saved through death, not saved from death. But how does he do it? And that's what I want to close out with this morning. How does Jesus get to that place? How does he avoid the, uh, being like Adam? How does he avoid being like Israel? And there's only one, one thing that makes any sense, and it's the words that were spoken to Jesus right before this, before the genealogy by Luke which is right after Jesus comes out of the waters of the baptism, what does his dad say about him? This is my son, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. In order to withstand extreme temptation, you've got to be able to stand in great trust. You've got to be able to stand in extreme trust. If you trust God, anything is possible. It's why we're saved by faith, because faith is trust trust is the most important thing everything else becomes easy when we trust and all those things that are weighing on your heart right now become easy when we truly trust in jesus right because when you trust in jesus you're able to actually know that i'm actually going to be able to not only be formed through this death experience but i'm going to be able to come out the other side bringing salvation to myself and others. You know, there's a, a, a great preacher one of, in one of our sister churches in the Kiev, Ukraine, um, Sean Wooten, and he was asked recently how he became the man he is today. And Sean said, if I listed the 10 most transformative times in my life, they would be the 10 most difficult times in my life. Leading the church in Kiev through the Chernobyl incident, leading the church in Kiev through the civil war several years ago, these are the times where the church and I grew the most because we're saved through death, not from death. You know, it, it's, it's these situations, what we're going through now is going to be something that's not just like, let's wait till it's over or let me just avoid or let me just know this is our moment. Like Will said in the desert, this is the moment to be able to say, no, when I'm tempted to type in those words into the URL to go to that website, I say, no, it is written. Any man that looks at a woman with lust commits adultery in his heart. These are my daughters. Every time you're tempted to write that social media post that is not considerate or sensitive, you remember it is written, right? To consider how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds from Hebrews chapter 10. Every time you think about saying something before you listen to somebody else, you remember that it is, it is what is wise it is to, to, to be quick to listen and slow to speak from James 1, that it is written where we can actually grow immensely through this time. We can be saved through death, not from death through this time. If we remember what is written, but if we subscribe to the ways of the world, we will simply go the same way as them, with just a, a religious veneer. We will be stamped for hell the same way that they are. 
this, this is not going to be easy. Nobody ever said it was going to be. But the beautiful thing is, is that Jesus did it. Jesus did it. Jesus is the agent of God that succeeds. Adam fails. Israel fails. Job fails. Here comes Jesus, and he trusts. He doesn't just trust now. He trusts three years from now when he dies on that cross. And people are still on him saying, if you are the Messiah, save yourself. If you are Jesus, save yourself. Jesus is going to be tempted with those words every day of his life, and so are we. If you are a good mom, save yourself. If you are a good dad, save yourself. If you're a good disciple, save yourself. But we actually can say, no, our salvation doesn't come from ourself. Our salvation comes from Christ. We're able to put our trust in, our, in, in Christ because of Romans 3.22. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How about Romans 6? Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Church, I pray that we can begin to trust in God completely. Because when we trust, we are able to go through situations of death knowing that we're actually going to, it's going to be better than if we just serve ourselves. Instead of not having that direct conversation with that sister or brother who is struggling, I know that if I actually go through that conversation and direct and say, brother, I just, I care about how you're doing. It's a hard conversation, but I notice you haven't been at church in a while. It's a hard conversation, but we are saved through death, not from death, right? To be able to speak up to somebody who doesn't share your ideological vision, doesn't share your thoughts, to be able to talk about racial injustice and be able to do so in humility, it's going to be a hard conversation, but we are saved through death, not from death. Stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to avoid these pains and go, you know what? I care about my brother. The right thing to do is obvious. The right thing to do, we know what the right thing is. The question is, will we do it? We know what the right thing is. Let's have that conversation. Let's be okay to be wrong. Let's be okay to, to, to be, to, when, we, when we help our kids know what is important in this world, you say, well, there's no more kids kingdom. Are our kids gonna be disciples? Your kids have always been your kids. Their salvation was always primarily the responsibility of mom and dad. Now that it's their choice, they don't, not, they don't have to become Christians, right? But their, their responsibility has always been on mom and dad. It's always been on aunt and uncle. It's always been on the neighbors, right? And so there are opportunities here to be able to be transformed in this time. And it will begin. We will be able to withstand extreme temptation. We will be able to withstand extreme temptation if we stand in extreme trust. If we remember that we're saved through death and not from death, we'll be able to actually celebrate more when our kids bring a friend to church than when they bring home an A. We'll celebrate our kids more when they forgive than when they win a sporting event. Because we're teaching them about the kingdom of God is not about saving yourself. It's not about calling your own shots. It's not about self-glory or aggrandizement. It is deny yourself and carry your cross. It's he who wants to save his life will lose it, but who loses his life for me will save it. And church, I just want to say that I'm proud of every stinking one of you for the last six months. 
you guys have done a remarkable job. This is, this is the great, this is the great trial of our times. Um, and this, but, it, but, but I pray that we don't waste it. And I pray that through this time, we can look back and say, man, I developed friendships through that time that I never would have developed. Man, I, I never would have shared my faith with this person if it wasn't for what had happened. I never would have had those conversations with my wife or the, I never would have learned to trust. I never would have learned that it's going to be okay. And our kids are going to talk about this one day. They're going to say, man, I remember seeing the church's faith through COVID-19 and I just, it made me want to become a Christian because I saw what trust was and I saw what peace was because we don't save ourselves church. We remember that we can trust in the, of the one who is trustworthy, of the one who went first, the one who was raised from the dead, the greater Adam, the greater Israel, the guy who just trounced Satan, right? Uh, there in the desert and he would trounce him again uh, at Golgotha. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and close this out with a prayer church. And I pray that we can remember. Thanks for listening to the Blue Ridge Podcast. My name is Will Portillo. And if you'd be interested in more resources like this or connecting with us, visit us online at blueridge.church or connect with us on Facebook at Blue Ridge Church of Christ. Visit us on YouTube and subscribe for weekly sermons, encouraging news, and short devotionals. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.